God's case against the unrepentant. To make sense of this chapter, we need to understand that this follows on from chapter 58, the 201 uh, section. And um, if you remember back to the start of chapter 58, the people think they've got it right. They're God's people, at least uh, they are the nation that God has chosen and God has set... They are God's special people. And they think that they're worshipping God absolutely fine. Uh, Indeed, they've got a complaint against God. Why is it that when we're worshipping God so well, God isn't answering us? God isn't acting for us? And if you remember back last time, so in the opening part of chapter 58, uh, God levels against them what the problem is, your sin. You know, this this is hypocrisy, your worship. There's no reality in it. You're going through all the motions of it. You're fasting, putting on sackcloth and ashes and everything else. Uh, but your hearts are far from me. And then the second half of chapter 58 is full of God promising how he will bless them when they recognize this, repent their sin, and uh, confess it and, and come under his blessing again. And the second half of chapter 58 is very upbeat. It ends on this, this very high note that God's blessing is there waiting for them as soon as they will humble themselves before him. But then when we go into chapter 59, we discover why it's only going to be a few of them, a a percentage of them that receive this blessing. Some of them, in fact many of them, most of them won't. And we discover why in this chapter. Second thing we need to understand before we look at this chapter in any detail is that these two peoples, the people of chapter 58 who are going to repent their sin and be under God's blessing, and those of 59 who are not going to, and therefore not be under his blessing, um, both externally appear to be God's people. It's, it's not like uh, we've got the comparison here between the people in Israel and, Pete and the Philistines or something. Uh, no, these, these are both people who give an external appearance of worshipping God. Uh, so it's sort of like in our culture today, saying those that go to church. Um, Paul was reading out some statistics from a uh, uh, survey that uh, I don't know if the BBC had done it or they were certainly reporting on it and in this survey 46% of those who were surveyed who said they were Christians don't believe in the resurrection they are not Christians but they think they are and they probably go to church and they probably give some appearance of being Christians that's the picture we've got here in chapters 58 and 59 People who appear to be Christians, people who give lip service to being Christians, people who when they go into hospital and they say, what is your religion, will say Church of England or Methodist or something as their tick box, but are not truly Christians. 58, we've got those who are truly Christians and repent their sin. 59, we've got those who think they are, but aren't. So with that said, Can I just ask a very simple question? Is it possible that you're here this morning but you'd have to put yourself in with chapter 59 rather than 58? You've got an appearance of being a Christian otherwise you wouldn't be here this morning. I I mean, we haven't got any Muslims here this morning, have we? Or Hindus here this morning. I mean, you, you know, it's Christians who go to Christian churches to worship. Is it possible though you're doing it externally, but internally, 
your heart's not right with God. Internally, you've never come by the way of the cross. You've never come through the Lord Jesus Christ, repented your sin and put your faith in him and yielded your life to him. And so although you appear to be part of the church, you would actually stand with these people in chapter 59. Let me ask that right at the start because then as we go through 59, you can see where you stand as far as God is concerned. And the first thing we discover in the first two verses is this, the failure of prayer. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Many times I've had a Christian relate to me, either in front of other people or to me personally, how they've been talking to someone who's not a Christian and that person has told them about various problems that are going on in their life and the Christian has turned around to them and said, what you need to do is pray about it. And they've gone on to tell them about how wonderful prayer is and how wonderful it is when God answers your prayers and so on. And then they've looked at me, fully expecting me, obviously, to say, well done, that's a wonderful bit of witnessing. Can I plead with you not to do that with non-Christians? In fact, it's one of the most unhelpful things you can say to a non-Christian. You cannot say to them, you want to pray about it, because prayer works and prayer is wonderful. Their prayers will not work. It will not be wonderful for them. Can I instead suggest to them, you, you say to them, what a shame you're not a Christian, then you could pray about it. And it's amazing what God does when Christians pray to him. Look, here's the issue. Verse 1, the problem's not with God. It's not as though God's hand is shortened so that he can't save. It's not like God's saying, well, you know, when, when someone in rebellion, when a non-Christian prays to me, unfortunately I'd like to help them, but I can't. He says, it's not that. Verse 1, he says, it's not that his ear's dull that he can't hear them. It's not as though his ear only works when Christians pray. No, the problem is there in verse 2. The problem is in the non-Christian. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you get it? Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because you're still in your sin, your sin acts as a barrier between you and God. All the time you're saying, I refuse to come to God by the way that he has provided, the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that has dealt with sin, all the time you're rejecting that, your sin is still there as a barrier between you and God, and God will not hear you. I've said that before, and I've had Christians come up to me afterwards and say, well, God's sovereign, he could do. Yes, of course he could do. He's the sovereign God of all glory, but he's declared here that he won't. I will not hear you, he says. All the time you refuse to bow the knee and worship Christ, God says, I will not listen to your prayers. And I know a lady who was converted, became a Christian on that point exactly. When it was made clear to her that she could not pray for a relative who she'd been praying for, who had various problems, and she was horrified by the fact that her prayers were not achieving it, would not achieve anything. 
And when she understood that it was her sin that was the barren, that she needed God's forgiveness, she needed Christ, she became a Christian. Because she had this overwhelming sense, I need to be able to pray. And sadly, we hide that from so many. We tell them they ought to just try praying. My friends, there's only one prayer that God promises to answer that a non-Christian can pray. And that's the prayer of confession of sin, repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Joel 2.32 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Three times over, Scripture declares it. That prayer, God will hear and God will answer. Now, prayer is a gift for the Christian. Prayer is a gift for those who are in a personal relationship with their Father through their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And what an amazing gift it is, isn't it? That we can come at any time and speak to God, the Creator God of all glory. So that's the first thing we discover. If, if we're not in Christ, we can't pray. We're going to have to try and struggle through life on our own. God's not going to help us. And then look at the sins of life, verses 3 to 15. Suggest to you that as we read through that, I would think every non-Christian will argue that that's a far blacker picture than is true of me. And probably some who have professed to be Christians would say the same. You know, that's that's too black Romans Paul picks up on this doesn't he in Romans 3 and he he quotes from here in Romans 3 as he's painting the picture there of our sin this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said on Romans 3 those verses that are taken from here let me put it plainly if you do not accept this description of yourself apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ then there is no need to argue about it you are just not a Christian if you resent all this you are not a Christian You're not yet convinced and converted of sin. You're not a believer in Christ, though you may have thought you were. If you in any way object to this, you're automatically putting yourself outside the kingdom of God and the Christian faith. This description of man in sin is the simple truth, the horrible truth. That is what sin has brought us to. Thank God that there is a way out of it. Close quote. My friends, this is reality. The trouble is, we're so used to sin, we're so surrounded by sin, we're so bombarded by it all over the time that we start to get dulled to it, don't we? We start not to see it as horrifically as it is. We start to become comfortable with it. We start to accept it. We even start to indulge in it if we're not very careful. This is how God sees it the all-knowing God. And this comes in two sections. It comes first as God declares it and then we see how the people then draw the logical conclusions from it that they're experiencing. Let's start with God's case. And it's interesting that when God describes them here and, and what they've got him wrong, he doesn't even mention anything in their attitude towards him. As it were, he skips over the, the first of the, the commandments he doesn't, he doesn't dwell on, you know, you're, you're not even recognising me as God. He just concerns himself with their dealings one with another. He says, that's enough to show how bad they are. 
first of all this speech verse 3 your lips have spoken lies your tongue mutters wickedness God says how can I characterize your conversation it's full of lies and wickedness James, writing in the New Testament, writing to Christians, says this about our tongues, James 3, 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And God says, when I listen to the way you're talking among yourselves, he's talking to those who are resisting him, those who aren't saved, He's saying it's just characterized by lies and wickedness. You know, we can become so used to people deceiving us, can't we? I had a guy phone me up the other week down here and he was trying to persuade me that uh, he could supply us with toner cartridges very cheaply. And I think it's absolutely genuine. But you wouldn't believe that for about the first 10 minutes of the conversation, I was convinced it was a scam. Because isn't that what we get bombarded with all the time? We just expect people almost to be lying to us when they phone up and say, I've got a really good deal for you. It's it's just the language of the world. The speaking in wickedness. And, And we get to the point that we no longer see it as an horrific sin. You know, someone phones up and, oh, I'm a Microsoft engineer. And like, you know it's a lie before they've gone any further. But we're not even surprised at it anymore. That someone is sitting there phoning up number after number after number after number to lie to them, to get them to do something in order that they can steal from them. And then you add to that what you get in emails and social media and phone calls and conversation. Because I hear it all. And then there's the hands, verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. God seems to be speaking at two levels here, doesn't he? He says your hands, the sort of the the bigger things you do, and your fingers, the the more intricate little things you do. And he says it doesn't matter whether I look at one or the other. The case is the same against you. They're covered in blood. And he goes on to give specific examples. Verse 4, in their lawsuits and they're going to court against each other. Occasionally watch Judge Judy. Never cease to be amazed when someone is there and they've got this case against the other one and she'll go through it all in some detail and then she'll turn to the other one and say, and you think you're not liable for this. You've got 30 seconds to explain to me why you think you're not liable in this. And you, because it's a no-brainer. You know, how on earth does this person think they can justify what they've done? But they do. And they go to court and and it's a tissue of lies that they're presenting. And God says, I see it. And then there's their feet, verse 7. Their feet run to evil and they're swift to shed innocent blood. It's not just that they do it in one place, they're doing it everywhere, they're doing it in their home, they're doing it in their workplace, they're doing it out in society. Their feet are just carrying them around so they can do more evil in more places. And then their thoughts, verse 7. And before you say anything and before you do anything, it's got to be in your head, isn't it? 
what does he say, verse 7? Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. The whole thinking, the whole mindset, the whole way of reasoning is how can I use the law, how can I use other people, how can I get out of it what I want to get out of it with no real regard or love for anybody else. It's me and mine. And so he summarises it, verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, there is no justice in their paths, they have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. That's God's verdict on the rebellious heart of man. Now when we become Christians, that doesn't mean that we suddenly stop being anything like that and become totally different, but it means God pays for that, God deals with that. But if we refuse God that, then that's how God sees us. Now it's interesting how they then, recognising that, summarise their status. You know, well, now God's spoken, that's how God sees us. That makes sense of why God's not hearing us. And you go through from verses 9 to 12, you know, they're unjust, unrighteous, groping, blind, stumbling people. Verse 10, they're like dead men. All that they can do and all that they are cry out to God against them. First, let's read from verse 11. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressions and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and righteousness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Doesn't that speak volumes of our generation and our culture today? Doesn't that sum up especially the public places, the public arena. Let me just remind you of a few of the statistics. I've only done them for England, but probably just scale them up and it's much the same for America percentage-wise. I guess we're in about the same boat, aren't we? 2016, last year, 6.2 million incidents of crime reported by adults in the UK. Last year, 30,838 offences involving knives or sharp instruments. 2015, 185,824 surgical abortions in England and Wales. 185,824 surgical abortions in England and Wales. 2014, 111,169 divorces. I've used the most recent year I could find for each of these. In the UK at the moment we've got 590,000 same-sex couples living together and between them they are privileged to be bringing up 115,000 children. 
Last year, Ofcom reported that in a survey, most people would be happy to have more swearing on TV before the nine o'clock watershed. And it just goes on and on, doesn't it? If you've looked in the latest Christian Institute uh, thing they've sent out, it's just a catalogue of issue after issue of our land today, isn't it? Where, where God says one thing and our country is saying, we want the other. What's being taught in schools, pressure that uh, they, they plan to make pharmacy that you can't on conscience refuse to prescribe or, or give out certain prescriptions, uh, pill, the um, morning after tablet and so on. Um, Oh, that's a climb down. Wales is uh, planning to ban smacking of your children. Uh, government's still pushing for this equality oath for all public officers so that if you're employed by the government in any capacity, you've got to swear allegiance to this set of British values that they've invented. And it just goes on and on. That's our land. And God says, and I see it all, and I hear it all. And I know your hearts and I know your thoughts and half of you are going to church and saying you're Christians and pretending that all is well with me. You've got no idea how bad is your standing before me. My friend, this is reality. But for the grace of God, that's where you and I would stand if you're a Christian this morning. It's not that we're better than them, it's just that we've experienced God's grace. How we need to be praying for our lands. How we need to be seeking to be the salt and light in our lands. How we need to be standing up for what God says is right and standing against what God says is wrong. Because if we don't do it, nobody will. And our land will go to hell, literally. But see the God who sees and acts. It amazes me that some people seem to think that with the land in the state it's in, God shouldn't be unhappy about it and he shouldn't be acting against it. I mean, really? When he's the Holy One, when he's the one who has laid out how it should be and he made us, has he got no right? Is he under no obligation to act against it? Of course he is. We'll see how he acts. But isn't it amazing? Verse 16, he's looked around for someone on earth to champion his cause. He's looked for someone to act as an intercessor. Looked for one person who would stand for him. And there's nobody. So what's he done, verse 16? He himself has acted to save. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And he dresses for battle. Isn't it amazing? Paul uses this when he gets into the New Testament to talk how we need to dress for battle against Satan. But here God's using this to dress against his enemies. This is God going to war against those who will not bow the knee to Christ. This is the final conflict. And look what it will be, verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. When Christ returns, God will act and God will judge each and every person on the face of this planet without exception, past, present and future. And the choice will simply be this. If you're in Christ, you're a sinner, but your sin is covered. 
If you're not in Christ, then you're a sinner and your sin is not covered. You still bear it and therefore you must be punished for it. God has made two places to punish sin. Hell in the individual who refuses Christ and Christ on the cross. And God has provided those. And he's made it clear he doesn't want to punish people for their sin in hell. That's why Christ went to the cross. But if you refuse that grace, then you choose hell by default. But look at the wonderful picture of what is provided in Christ in verses 20 to 21. And a redeemer will come to Zion. This is Jesus Christ. A redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. To those who are in the world. Doesn't just mean it restrictively to the nation of of Israel. To, To those who will, what's it say? Turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth, henceforevermore. Those who turn from their transgression. That's what God requires of us. We've got to do a 180 degree about turn. We've got to see our lives for what they are as God sees them. And somehow we've got to help people out there to see their lives as God sees them. This idea that they're good people, this idea that they're living good lives. My friend, if anyone think here thinks they are a good person living a good life, you, you need to hear this. You're not. Jesus said there is none good but God alone. We don't begin to understand what good is until we see Christ. Now we need to see ourselves as God sees us or at least a glimpse of how God sees us and be horrified by who we are and then come and seek God's forgiveness and repent. literally means do a 180 degree turn. Say, God, I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to displease you anymore. I want to please you. I want to honour you. I, I want your blessing to be upon me. Look, God, I, I, I turn to doing it your way at this point. And I, I can't do that on my own, Father. I just pray that you would enable me to do it. That Holy Spirit would do in me that which is pleasing to you. So from here on, I'll live under your blessing rather than under your wrath. Because that's what the Redeemer's been provided for. Look at the promise. He says, I make a covenant with them. It's a covenant in the blood of Christ. And that covenant is, he says, this will hold for your generation, your children's generation, your children's children forevermore until Christ returns. My friend, what a wonderful promise to anyone this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. God says, I've provided a Redeemer. If you'll repent your sin, if you'll turn from it and put your trust in Him, and and give your life over to him to run it, then my promise is for every generation, including ours, and it will last forevermore, that I'll see you as I did in chapter 58, those latter verses, where my blessing will be upon you, rather than as I see you now, 
in chapter 59 when you stand under my wrath what a wonderful message to take back out there to a world that is dying to a world that's going to hell and hasn't got a clue that that's where it's going I mean how often do you hear somebody say oh I, I heard it on an advert for a program the other day it's a program where they're, they're going on walks with dogs up mountains and that. some of you may have seen the trailers for it and if I could remember his name I'll say what his name is and I can't he played Bergerac he's sitting up with the dog up quite high on a mountain thing and he says well this is, this is probably as close to heaven as I'll ever get and he's saying it with a grin on his face I know it's been scripted he's probably been given the line to read how can you sit there and say this is probably as close to heaven as I'll ever get with a grin on your face and you get people say well I'm going to hell but at least I'll be there with my mates you know we, 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 can, we can drink beer together my mates and I you reckon you've got no idea how horrific hell will be but no one needs to know no one needs to experience it what God requires is that we just recognise that before him we are unholy unrighteous sinners and throw ourselves on his mercy and he will do it all it is all grace and God will cover our sin he'll remove it from the scripture says as far as the east is from the west an infinite distance and it will be covered by the blood of Christ let's pray Father God what a contrast between chapters 58 where you see men and women repenting and turning to you and you make these amazing promises of how your grace will bless their lives and then in chapter 59 those who refuse and won't and and you show them where they stand before you and, and they can even see it they can even say well yeah if that's right then that explains why you're not answering us and and all the rest of it what a contrast Father first my prayer would be that every one of us are sure that where we stand that we can be absolutely certain that I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and then Father that we might go back out into this fractured damaged world in which we live with these horrific statistics that we can't even begin to get our heads around a land that has rejected the gospel rejected the bible rejected Christianity rejected you and yet a land that feels it's so good and so right and so blessed Father would you help us to go out there and just be beacons for you be the salt in the society be the light set on a hill that they might see for the first time what a delusion it all is and what a terrible place they stand this moment outside of Christ Father would you help us to do that we pray in Jesus name Amen we're going to sing